0: Passage today is Matthew fifteen verses twenty one through thirty nine. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into a boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan.
1: All right. Thanks, Shane. Hey, good morning, everybody. Everybody good? All right. Awesome. All right. So, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be speaking on baptism and, uh, and talking to you about what it is. It's um, a beautiful ritual in which we help people put away their past identities in their past life and welcome them anew in, into, uh, into life in a new way. It's a gift of the church to the people. And so I'll, I'll describe that in uh, hopefully some new ways for you in the coming weeks. Someone's keys, I'm going to push those off the edge. Boom. Or otherwise I'm going to do it on accident and it's going to scare me. Okay. Also, if you were here last week, you got one of these. Uh, if you didn't, if you don't know what I'm looking at, it's just an envelope. Green printed, which says, Until All Know Home. Um, we're doing something for the next seven weeks, actually six weeks now, um, in which we are, we are all taking one of these and we're putting about five bucks a week into it so that we can provide home uh, and shelter for um, battered and abused women um, in Tampa, of which there's very little help for them. And so, $15,000, that's how much we're trying to raise, and if everyone partakes in that, um, then it'll be everything that they need. Every single dime of it is going directly to homeless helping homeless um, so that they can um, build this shelter, okay? Um, and so it's got a little checkbox all the way across here, seven of them. Seven in the Hebrew scriptures was, the, uh, was sort of the symbol of new life. And that's what we're trying to grant some people here. Last week, Mickey was up here and he read some stories and some letters from some women um, who are terrified, who have nowhere to go. Some of them pregnant. Um, and so uh, this is a small, simple thing that, that, uh, that we're doing right now that we're, that we're asking of you, and we're all doing it together. Of course, we could, we could just call some wealthy people and say, hey, give us $15,000, but I want to invite all of you, every one of you, I think you can do this. So you can do $5 um, a week um, for seven weeks so that we can um, provide some shelter. We're a church. This is what we should be doing. Again, if we can do all this... We can do things like this constantly and regularly and bringing new life to our community. All right. So if you didn't get one of these, um, in the back, there should be more on the, in, on the, in the lobby out there. Um, and uh, we have people coming in the next few weeks to talk and um, share a little more about this project and people from the project are going to come and talk to us about it. So um, yeah, this is our passage today. It's very long. It's very big. Here's what we're going to do. Um, this passage is actually incredibly groundbreaking and, and most people have no idea um, what this passage is actually about. And to me, it is, it is one of the most fascinating things because understood rightly, I, mean, I, I, I always talk to people who are like, well, it's a, uh, a plain reading of the scripture. If you just read this one plainly, it really looks like Jesus is being rather rude and, and he actually seems to drop a racial slur in the middle of the text. I don't know if you picked up on that. Um, um, that's why an ignorant reading of scriptures is, is, is a, a difficult and dangerous thing to do. So This morning we are going to ditch our ignorance and we're going to dive into this text as if we were first century Jewish Christians and uh, and we're going to hopefully see some things we haven't seen before. All right? Everybody good? Everybody awake? Okay. You sure? All right. Okay. It's feeling a little dead. Not going to lie. Okay. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to try to wake you up and we're going to do this thing, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people guide us today here Allow, allow us to receive something new. Um, open our eyes. Let the scales drop from our eyes and, and reveal to us something that we haven't seen. Um, let, uh, let every time we gather be, be sort of another adjustment on, in, in the trajectory of our lives and the direction that we are heading as individuals and as a community and as the people of God. Um, guide us. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay. How much time have we got? All right. Good. We have a lot of work to do. So. I'm going to start off right here in verse, uh, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, again, um, modern readers, they look at the text plainly, and they think they're looking at it through no filters at all. Um, they tend to look at it and they say, well, um, the way I'm reading it today here in... In America, in the 21st century, with, with my race and my gender, the way I'm reading it is the way that the original readers read it. Um, and people are completely ignorant of all the bias that they actually are carrying when they read the text. Um, they're just, they just have no idea that they have it. And so if you read this text... Um, through the wrong lens, which I would argue most of us are, tend to just naturally read it through the wrong lens on accident, what you end up seeing is you get a bit of confusion. You see Jesus being rude. The woman's calling out. He's ignoring her. And then you actually see Jesus saying, uh, she says, help me. And he says, it's not right of me to take the food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And you're like, oh, a little salty. I, what is that? What is, why are you talking like this to this poor woman? So... Um, I'm going to show you this morning, there's a lot of things you're missing, and if you have these things, it's, it's, going to, uh, it's going to change some stuff. So I'm going to give you four lenses in particular, which I want you to read this text through. Um, and we're going to work through them all individually. I'm not really going to go much into the feeding of the 4,000. I've done that a little bit ago, and it's going to sort of have the same um, application. I'm going to touch on it just a hair and show how it connects to this. Um, uh, okay. So this passage is a well. It's incredibly deep. Um, and, and, and one of the first things that you need to, um, to see is sort of a um, look at this thing through the lens of, of the Jewish people and their history and their identity and who they are. So the first lens that we're going to look at is right here. They have, they have an incredibly painful past. And so here we go. It's going to start um, in verse 21 again. Uh, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew specifically to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And it says a Canaanite woman came from that vicinity to him. So right off the bat, um, astute biblical readers should say, hmm, why did Matthew mention this specific area? Why does this matter? Um, and uh, and why does it tell us the nationality of the woman and where she came from? Uh, and, and, then, and then maybe um, maybe we should check The parallel passages, a parallel passage is there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did any of the other disciples who write their gospels, did any of them tell this story? And what details did they add? And let's gather these things up. So right away, if you flip over to Mark chapter 7, you see the same story, and you see the woman's description, and you read this. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Okay, same woman, same story, two different identities. Why? And who's right? Um, is this gasp, is this inconsistency um, those questions aren't interesting to me okay? the interesting question to me is, is, is why specifically are, are these specific places mentioned they are all mentioned for good reason um, first century writers did not write like you and I write okay? they had a reason for writing what they wrote um, so who is right, now, I would argue and uh, there really is no better argument that Mark is actually the accurate one here, not Matthew um, this woman was Greek, and she was born in Syria and Phoenicia. How do we know this? How can I just arbitrarily say what this woman was and what she wasn 't? Well, first off, um, the Canaanites, Matthew says that she was a Canaanite. The Canaanites didn 't even exist in the first century. They were gone. About five hundred years earlier, they had been assimilated into other cultures. OK So a small drop into like um, history and archaeology will tell you a lot about the Canaanites. They were a brutal people um, who tortured and regularly killed. Um, and, and did their best to enslave the, uh, the Israelites. They were mortal enemies of the Israelites. Um, this is an ancient Canaanite relief of them worshipping their God by, by killing and sacrificing a baby. Uh, they were a people who were steeped in violence. Um, they were all around a disturbing culture. Okay? Um, why does Matthew say she's a Canaanite why doesn't Matthew say that she's Greek and she's from Syria and Phoenicia so Matthew again is not writing regular history the way that modern readers think of history Matthew is is using events to argue theology so he's going to take an event that happened in the life of Christ which is apparently Jesus had a brush with this woman and he healed her daughter okay and, uh, and Matthew is going to use this woman to represent specific things in the church. Um, in the first century, when the book of Matthew was written, there were all kinds of arguments going on about how is the church going to work. Um, everything had changed. Uh, and the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, because Christianity started off as a Jewish movement. Um, it was sort of this restoration of Israel under King Jesus. Um, and this is how it started off. But right away, the theology of Christ was that other people were going to be coming into the church. Um, this is one of these passages that represents several different arguments going on in the church. Um, what do we do with all, with all these outsiders coming in? Um, with these, these minority groups, with, these, uh, with, with, with women coming into the church as well, in ways that they had never been let in. Um, what do we do about if, if our mortal enemies enter in? So what Matthew does here is, is by calling her a Canaanite... Um, Matthew is specifically setting her up as like this ghost of Israel's past, right? The ghost of Israel, like a a Disney movie. Um, The ghost of Israel's past, right? Like a a political enemy and a a sort of a, a national enemy. And the question that they are supposed to answer is, is this type of person the kind of person that Jesus would welcome into the community. What about our enemies? And, and it gets really interesting because, um, because we actually have um, this woman here. She comes to Jesus, and he describes her as Canaanites, evil, terrible, awful, mortal enemies of their own nation. And she says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. What is that? Okay, that, that, is, um, that is the language of the theological insider, on the lips of the national enemy of the Jewish people. Okay, you know what this is? This is like um, this is like uh, an, an American Christian who's in the military and maybe he's in Afghanistan and he's taking some prisoners whom they just won a battle against and he's taking the prisoners and one of the prisoners um, he comes up on him and 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 he's on his knees praying the Lord's prayer. Okay, um, the Christian creeds on the lips of your national enemies. Um, this is like a this is like like a, a Jewish rabbi being arrested during World War II and then hearing um, a local German um, praying the Shema. What are we to think of this? What do we do when our mortal enemies, our national enemies, our political enemies turns out, worship Jesus as Lord? How do we react with this? This is purposely dropped in the text. There's a reason... Matthew calls her a Canaanite. Um, It represents one of the battles going on in the church at the time. Um, They were struggling with this. Uh, Picture them sitting at this table, and and the Jewish Christians are there. Obviously, they're at the table because they're God's chosen people, right? And God, Jesus himself, was Jewish. So obviously, you know, they win. And so there's this big table, and and, and there's all these empty seats, and there's people standing around the edges of the room. And one of them is is your arch nemesis, a Russian and Iraqi North Korean Whatever. People maybe that your country is at war with. Are they welcome at the table in the church? And they have to deal with this, okay? Um, that is an incredibly heavy way to start this, this, uh, this whole thing. Because right away when, when the Jewish readers read that she's Canaanite, they're like, oh, okay. Okay, yeah, Jesus is going to ignore her first, right? Because we're going to ignore her, okay? So um, this is the start to this. Can a political and national enemy of ours sit at our table of fellowship? as Christians who really is our king that's the question are our kings our kings or is our king our our, our king now that's the first lens the second lens that these people had to read this text was the Jewish Gentile relation um, sort of lens here Um, this one starts if you look at uh, verse 23 um, here's here's what's going to happen this woman is going to ask three different times for healing for her daughter she's going to call out for help three times and there's three different reactions. Let's look at them. So Jesus did not answer a word. So this woman calls out for help. And Jesus keeps on walking. He didn't, he didn't answer a word. Um, so the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. So the first answer um, is not an answer at all. There's no answer. Why doesn't Jesus answer this woman? We're going to get there. And by the end of this, this, this text has a bit of, a, of an M. Night Shyamalan ending. No joke. It's, I'm going to give you one piece of, the, of information at the end. You're going to be like, Well, that changes the entire meaning of the text. And it does. And when I saw it, um, I had a professor teach me this text a few years ago. It blew my mind. Okay? Now, um, I think this is one of the most important texts, honestly, in the book of Matthew. And and you'll see why when we're done. Um, Jesus did not answer a word. His disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. Now, depending on what what version of the text you're reading, you're going to get this response by the disciples translated differently. Um, There is a, a specific Greek word there. It's the Greek word for release. So it says, release her. Um, and some scholars argue that this means um, set her free, like heal her, and some believe it means uh, release release her, like, like, send, like let her go, all right, like send her away, okay? Um, and so there's some debate about this, and, and um, a lot of people tend to want it to mean release her, like heal her, like the disciples are calling it, yes, Jesus, heal her. Um, I actually don't believe that's the right interpretation of it. I actually believe that what the NIV did here is the right, is the right interpretation, and, and you'll see why when we're done. Um, um, so disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, um, for she keeps crying out to us. Okay, so now I'm going to get to the next part here. Um, the second time she's asked for help, it says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus' response is, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Um, the woman came to knelt before him, Lord, help me. Um, it's not, and then he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So we have sheep and we have dogs. Um, and the Jewish people... Um, first off, normally when you read this, you're like, again, yeah, that sounds like a racial slur, right? Like, how can Jesus ever call anyone a dog? Okay, so wrapped up in the context of the Jewish people, um, in their entire history, if you read all of the Old Testament, um, people are described as animals. If you read any any first century. Texts. if you read um, anything from what's called the pseudepigrapha, which is like a a massive collection of first century texts, you see the stories of of the people of Israel retold, like the entire Bible is basically retold in animal form. The the people of God are always described as sheep, all through the Old Testament as well, as well as first century writing. Um, They're always described as sheep, and everyone who is not Israel is described as wolves. Always. Wolves, dogs. Uh, It goes back and forth. Um, And they're not... So, first off, like, calling yourselves sheep, that's not raising yourself up. That's not a compliment. Sheep were really stupid. Um, they would regularly just walk off a cliff while eating grass, reaching for peace, and just fall off a cliff. All the time. There's stories in the Bible about sheep falling into holes. Um, there's stories about a shepherd literally having to break a sheep's leg so it would stop wandering off and kill itself, and then he's going to carry the sheep, okay? Um, so there's all kinds of ways the sheep are not talked up, like, like the pristine, perfect animal. No, there's st- They're stupid. Um, And they regularly go blind as well. So they have to follow by voice. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow them. Okay. Now, wolves, like sheep will follow other things who are heading different directions. If a wolf enters and near the pack, not only does a wolf want to eat the sheep, but if a wolf passes by, oftentimes sheep will follow the wolves. They will just follow them. Come on, guys. Back to my place. Have a dinner party. Um, So they do this. Um, So when... When Jesus is talking about sheep and wolves, remember, um, sheep and dogs, the, 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 who is the audience of the book of Matthew? It is Israel. The reason they are called wolves and dogs is because they are incredibly smart. They tend to lead the people astray. Um, when the people follow them, um, they end up in idolatry, they end up in exile, and um, they have their own leaders, their own kings that, that the people of God are not supposed to um, follow or affirm as their leaders, Okay. Um, that's what this is. This is not a racial slur. If anything, It's just simply a metaphor, the way people spoke back then. Today, um, we don't use this kind of language. We don't describe our people in animal form and their people in animal form or trees or anything like that. We just don't do that because we realize oftentimes our prejudices tend to come through. So it's difficult sometimes to read an an ancient text in which people regularly naturally talked this way. But this is what they did. Um, And so Jesus uses this language. um, And on top of that, um well let's just let's just go to the next one. Let's just read it. Um and then and then she asked for help. He says, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, and we're gonna get to more about what this means in a bit. Um and she says, Yes it is, Lord, she said, Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. This whole thing is really confusing. Like, why okay? Why did that random argument stir Jesus to say, Wow, you have great faith? Yes. Dogs sitting under a table eat food that children drop. Wow, your faith is great. How in the world is this saying anything? Now, um, you are obviously missing some pieces that you, ne- that you, that you need to understand this. Um, but a very important part of this is that um, in the Jewish tradition, so first off, this is the third time she has asked in the Jewish rabbinical tradition. People had to ask three times to become a part of God's people. Um, on the third time, uh, well, the first two times you're going to be utterly rejected. You're going to be ignored and rejected. It's like, no, no, you can't become one of God's people. You cannot become Jewish. You cannot become a follower of me as a rabbi, anything like that. They still do this today, by the way. Um, they've done this since the beginning of their tradition. Um, and on the third time, asking a third time after being rejected twice was a sign of devotion. It was a sign of faith. It was a sign of, of, no, I believe this to be the right way. So first off, some of this is at play. That doesn't explain the whole thing, but some of that is at play. Um, and it is understandable that, that that Jesus would deny her twice and then receive her on the third one. Um, however, there's more, there's more than this. In the Matthean church in the first century, when this book was written, it was mainly Jewish, almost like, like high 90% Jewish. However, there was likely a small um, band of minorities in the Jewish congregation of, of uh, maybe local Greek slaves, uh, maybe even masters women, um, all kinds of... Uh, all kinds of people who are interested in what's going on in the early church. And there was this huge debate about, do we let these outsiders in? Again, you're sitting at the table and there's people. Who gets to sit at the table? We have these empty seats. Is it just for Jewish people? Is it for Greeks or for Gentiles? How about, how about slaves? How about masters? How about, how about women? Can we all be equal at the table together? What do we do about this? Um, and this reflects one of those arguments. Some of the people in Matthew's audience are going to be reading this. And they're going to see the response of, of the disciples And they're going to say, send her away. And they're going to say, like, yes, that's exactly what I think should happen. I don't think these people should be sitting at the table. I think they should be sent away. Why? They are our national enemies. They used to kill us and hunt us down. We have a long history of strife with these people. And there is no way that God would ever allow these people into the church to sit with us and worship with us. And so, so, no. So some of these people are going to be reading the text. And they're going to see the response of the disciples. And they're going to say, yep, that's the right response. However, there's going to be also a small minority of Gentiles in the group, and they're going to be reading the story of the woman who comes in, the Canaanite woman. She's Greek, she's, can- she's Canaanite, whatever she is. She comes in, and they identify with her because she's speaking the language of the Christian creed. She's affirming Jesus in Israel's own language, which to the Jewish people, she has no right to do. How can she call him son of David? How can she call him king? There's no way she can possibly know what she's talking about. And the minority group in the church is saying, this, that's me. And I just want a seat at the table. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And they're being rejected constantly. So all of this is, is swirling around in this text and in, in the reading of it. Matthew's very smart with what, he do, what he's doing. He even goes a lot farther, and we're going to see that. So that's the second sort of lens you need to read this thing through. The Gentiles were considered uneducated, crass, not cultured, not holy, everything lowbrow in society, okay? Um, but Jesus shocks them all by, by basically elevating this Canaanite woman and even commending her faith above the faith of his own disciples. And so Matthew has Jesus elevating this woman even above God's own people. So this is fascinating. We get to the next one. Um, the third lens that we should look through here is the lens of, of gender separation. This is actually in the first century a huge one, and surprise, surprise, it's still a huge one today. Um, in the last hundred years, a lot, lot less churches have been um, um, uh, ordaining women as ministers, our own denomination, um, doesn't ordain women anymore, even though they used to about um, 100 years ago when it was founded. Um, I know people who came to Christ under, in, in, a, in a Christian Mission Alliance church under a female pastor, and now um, they're still struggling with, because in, apparently in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there was a hard response to what was going on in the 70s, um, and a lot of denominations shot back the other way to a, a specific reading of, of the scriptures that says that women can't be pastors, women can't be leaders in the church, and then the Baptists stop having women. Did you know the Southern Baptist Convention, they used to uh, ordain women? Back in the 70s, they did. They no longer do now. And now they're rethinking it. Um, And they should, because there was no reason for that shift. Um, So, this debate going on right now, um, of which many of us in our denomination are fighting too, by the way. um, This debate going on right now is the same debate that was going on back then. Because culturally, uh, the men had the power and they, they had, imagine, imagine your whole life being raised in the Jewish community and then becoming a Christian, but your whole life, you've only ever ministered with men. And that's what you've always done. All the work in the temple is done by men. All the work in the community is done by men. All the leadership, all of it, all done by men. And you can't possibly imagine a woman leading anything. Now, fast forward to the church, the early church, the time of Christ. You see Paul, and what is Paul doing? Paul is giving women ownership of this thing. Paul trains a woman like Phoebe to read the book of Romans, to interpret the book of Romans, and he sends her out as the courier to preach the book of Romans, um, the most complicated book in all scriptures, by the way, to preach this book in all of the Roman house churches and to answer the questions, to teach it, and to theologically interpret it uh, in the place of Paul. Um, Paul himself being discipled by likely Aquila, um, and Priscilla and Aquila, um, and Paul affirming women like Junia, um, to be leaders in the church This is a fascinating painting right here This is from the 2nd uh, century um, This is Paul This is a, a relief a, a painting of Paul In an ancient place Where the early church used to gather He's got a, a scroll Like a codex Of scripture in his, in, his, in his lap And he's holding up Two fingers like this Which means he's teaching This is what this meant In the 1st century Look over here This either is Mary or Phoebe We're not really sure Which woman it is But it's definitely a woman And look what has happened To her, hand, to her hands It has been vandalized And her hands have been scraped off Women led in the early church. Many, many women led in the early church. It didn't make it any easier, though. The battle still raged. So the fact that this, um, the way Matthew describes this woman is really, really important. Um, this is one of the passages that highlights the struggle. Because um, what he's basically saying is, look, the authority belongs to Jesus. Jesus. Whoever Jesus is going to elevate, Jesus is going to elevate. It has nothing to do with you. It is not your authority to give to anyone else. It is Christ's authority to give to the church as he sees fit. God will raise up um, women, minorities, everyone as he sees fit to lead the church, lead in God. It is not your decision. It 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 is the decision of Christ and Christ alone. And it will not be based on class, race, gender, none of it. That is how the early church was supposed to function. So the big part of this is the language that this woman is using suggests again that she is already endowed with liturgical and theological speech that suggests that she is part of the community of God's people. Um, It is is by no means insignificant that this right here is the very first time we see an argument for Gentile inclusion in the gospels. This is the passage that first, first argues for Gentile inclusion in the church through the language and the way that it spokes. And it is by no means an accident that Matthew puts it in the mouth of a woman. Um, And it is by no means an accident where Matthew places this text right before the feeding of the 4,000 and how many baskets are gathered up at the end of this one? Seven. What is, again, what is the symbol of seven in the Hebrew Scriptures? It's the symbol of a new creation, new life, a new thing. Okay. All of this is very important, and this is a, a, a weighty text. It is sort of a bait and switch for, for Matthew's readers. Um, they read this, and some of them are outraged, and some of them are given hope, and some of them are like, I don't know what to do. I'm uncomfortable. This, pa- this passage was meant to make a Jewish Christian man uncomfortable. This is what it was meant to do. Um, so this makes basically the Canaanites woman's contribution to one of the most crucial transitions in the early church, front and center. In the same way um, that the first people to proclaim that Jesus is risen is put in the mouth of a woman in the scriptures. All of this is on purpose. All of this is to emphasize exactly what Paul said. There is no longer slave or free, man or woman, Jew or Gentile. All are one. There is a table and we all sit at it. And the only place of honor on the table is the, the seat of Christ. And Christ will give authority to whom Christ gives authority. So there's... A lot of people wrestling with their own interpretations of Scripture. They read it and they say, well, it seems like Paul is saying this, but we know Paul did this. How do we deal with this? And I would offer up, maybe you should rethink how you read the Scriptures. Maybe, maybe you're being careless. Maybe you need to put in a little more time and effort to understand why Paul says what Paul says and why Matthew says what Matthew says. Now, um, that is another lens to read it through. Um, The fourth lens, the most important one, the big, the big life-changing lens in this one is actually the socioeconomic lens. Um, Because there is something going on here that when you see it, turns this whole thing upside down and and gives whole new meaning to the whole conversation that they were having. Okay? And it goes a little like this. Um, Jesus withdrew from that region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman... In large letters, from that vicinity came to him. Okay. From the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, And uh, let's read uh, what Mark says about it. This woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. So um, we have some context of who this woman was, where she came from, where she lived, where she was raised. Um, Mark says she was Greek. If you read uh, scholars, uh, like New Testament scholar Tyson, he says, uh, the knowledge of Gre- the Greek language and the culture point to a member of the upper class since Hellenization had first affected the people of higher status everywhere. So this woman, specifically, you are told she is Greek. You are told where she was born. All of this is really important. Um, and there's more to it. Oh, let's go, wait, okay, what's this next one? A little farther. Okay, Mark seven thirty. 30. After, after Jesus says, um, your faith is great, your daughter is healed. Okay? So she goes home in Mark seven thirty. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Now the Greek here is incredibly important. Um, the the word for bed, normally that is used all through scriptures, is this word grabatos. and it, it basically is um, it's like a rolling mat that, you know, is it, it was like a like portable bed. You just roll it up and walk, and I'm sure it wasn't very comfortable, but it's it's your bed, it's all you got it's what most poor people had that is not the word used for bed here the word used for bed here is this word cleané a cleané is a specific thing let me show you what it is this is a A. okay it's first century it's exactly from the time period that she, in which she lived from the same place um, it's made of wood, bone and glass it is some sweet high-end furniture all right This woman went to West Elm, um, and she said, I'll take just one of everything, let's go. Um, This is a wealthy, wealthy woman, okay? Um, Most people don't see this coming. Even more so, there's some geopolitical stuff going on here. Um, The region where she is from, the city of Tyre, was on an island, and this island Didn't have a lot of fertile ground, so they couldn't grow a lot of crops. They couldn't grow things like grain, because it takes up a lot of land to grow enough grain to feed the people. However, it was very rich, and so they would import all their grain. Um, And we have um, ancient records that talk about how this worked. Basically, the rich people would go out and buy all of the grain from the surrounding regions. All around them were Jewish settlements, poor people who grew the grain, and the rich people would basically um, work out a deal with the government, whatever, and they would take everything, and they they would buy everything through the government. They would buy all of the grain, so the poor Jewish peasants didn't have any bread, and they couldn't make it, because they couldn't get any wheat, only a little bit of what was left over that they could get. And this woman was part of a society that they were incredibly rich, and they just bought everything up, and they brought it all in, and they had all the bread in the world, okay? Um... This is a huge deal to understanding this text. Um, Now, I want you to go back. And now that you have this lens, here's how this conversation goes. And I want you to read this later this week. And and, and I want you to try and see this, okay? Because this is exactly what is going on. Um, The woman says, help me. And Jesus knows who she is. His own people have been persecuted and oppressed by this woman and her people for a long time. That's... Likely why Matthew's calling her a Canaanite. Because once again, she's an oppressor and an enemy. Okay? So Jesus says, um, she says, help me. He says, I came to help the lost sheep. In other words, I am actually here to help the people that you are oppressing. And I'm about to feed 4,000 of them miracle bread. Okay? Right after this passage, he gathers up all the Jewish people and feeds them miracle bread. Okay? Now, and the woman calls out, help me. And Jesus says, it is not right to take the Jewish children's bread and give it to the Gentiles. Haven't you taken enough from my, oh, I spelled that wrong, from my people? Oh, just a little space. From my people. Are you going to drink from our spiritual well too? He, so this conversation is centered around Jesus confronting this woman. She comes to Jesus and says, help me. My daughter's laying on her West Elm couch and she's got a demon possess, possession, right? And she comes to Jesus and he says, and he looks at her and he's like, you guys have been, you've been persecuting my people, taking all of our bread for Generations. And oppressing us and leaving us poor with nothing. It is not right of you to take the bread from the children of God and to throw it to the dogs. The people who, who didn't grow it, who don't, didn't earn it. It's not right. And then we begin to go back and forth. It's not right. And, and then the woman responds. Uh, I, I, I just want here, let me... Um, let me read the, uh, the text here. I, I, didn't, I didn't throw it up there. Um, verse 26, he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Verse 27, yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Okay. So basically this woman says, I just want what they've always had. I want the crumbs that fall from your table. You've always had the crumbs that come from our table. I just, I'm, I'm in your place. You may not have, Riches in food, but you are rich in spirituality. You're rich in God. And you have something that we don't have. I just want the crumbs from your table. I just want what they've always had. Crumbs from the table of the rich. Uh, just, I, I just want what is left over. I am poor and they are rich. So this woman now finds herself in a complete role reversal, realizing that although she is wealthy, she is spiritually poor. And what she wants is actually what the poor people that they've been oppressing have. Purpose, a righteous king, the Torah, a way to live, which they have rejected for so long. The presence of God in their midst. That's what she wants, because she needs healing. Now, um, Jesus has a response. He says, woman, you have, you have great faith. Your request is granted. So wh- why does this woman... Have great faith. Because in her reply, she is relinquishing all of her privilege. The poor in that area have only ever had the food that is left over, and she's stepping into their place. I just want what's left over. I will do anything. I will become poor. I will become like the oppressed so that I can find healing for my daughter. And so she is identifying with these people, and it's sort of this act of repentance. It's sort of this role reversal, and she's elevating them above herself and begging for the spiritual crumbs from their table. Um. It's a really stunning passage. It is incredibly beautiful. Um, A mountain of books have been written about this passage and the meaning behind it. Matthew does something that nobody else, none of the other uh, writers of the Gospels do. Um, So, where we might oftentimes read this and see as a modern reader, well, it looks kind of like a racial slur. um, What we're actually seeing um, is a very straightforward confrontation of injustice perpetuated upon the poor. That's what we're actually seeing. Jesus is confronting this woman. She comes to him for healing and he first looks at her and says, why do you do what you do? Why is it that you are continuing? And then, and then you're calling out to God for help. The way you live, all of the things that you are taking part in in this world that are hurting so many people, hurting my people, um, and then you're calling out to God for help when you need it. Is this how we are going to live? And then... You have people, so there's this theologian named Ernesto Cardinal. Um, he did, um, he worked with the poor peasants, uh, in, in, it, even now, it, with the poor peasants of, of Nicaragua. And it's funny because when you read the scriptures with people of different classes in different countries, um, they see things that you don't see. Um, right away, uh, in his commentary on this, he writes about how um, the Nicaraguan peasants say, that they, they read the story and they say, well, this woman must have been a rich old woman. She must have been an oppressor he's like, how do you know this? And there's this whole conversation. They recognize it because they've been living it. The poor Nicaraguan peasants, they've been living this. And they see it right off the bat. Um, whereas we're reading it from another side and oftentimes we miss the whole thing. But it doesn't, here's the thing. This passage doesn't end with condemnation. Oftentimes people wanna condemn the actions of people and just leave it there and leave them outside and, and condemn them and say, you are not welcome here. You don't have a seat at this table. Jesus actually does the exact opposite. He does confront the evil, and then he heals her and sits her down. The, the words of, of the Christian confession are put in her mouth in this passage. And so she also finds her seat at the table. And so as you read this passage, all of these layers are there. It is meant to be poured over and contemplated and debated. Yeah, you can picture a bunch of first century um, Jewish Christians sitting around debating this passage, saying, well, who is, who is, uh, who's hurt us in the past? how could they ever be grafted into the church? How could they ever be brought in? Um, what, about, what about those who are not like us? Those who weren't raised in the same traditions? Those who think differently? Uh, are, are, they allowed, are they allowed under King Jesus to come and enter into the church and sit with us? Is there, are, are we allowed to have differences of, of thought and opinion in the church? Differences of tradition? And can we still worship together? These conversations were heavy and they were happening. Um, how about gender separations? Is, uh, do those exist anymore? Or is God calling us to put those aside? Um, how about um, the socioeconomics of everything? What about, um, what about the poor? Of course, everyone always says, yes, the poor are of course welcome. How about, how about, how about those on the other side? How about the, the super wealthy? Those who maybe you might look at as oppressors, are they welcome as well? Can you, under Jesus, worship with them? Can you worship with the people who have hurt you? Can you worship with the people who are far different than you? can you worship with people you're uncomfortable worshiping with? This is the conversation the early church was having. It's the conversation that really every generation of church needs to have. It's the conversation we are having now. I have, in my lifetime, never seen a church so divided as as the evangelical church is today. Mostly separated by, um, for some reason, earthly kingdom political parties. Can we come together and realize the kingdom of God will stand forever, every other kingdom will fail, and that in every country in this world, whether they are our friends or our enemies, um, there are citizens of the kingdom of God there who serve the same king. We are everywhere, and we collectively have one Lord. These These are difficult things to deal with. Now, one of the most stunning things that I also see in this picture is that, is that in verse 25 there is this bit of a shift. They're walking along, so Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and this woman is coming up behind them, and she's yelling, "Help me! Help me! Help me!" And she represents all of these things, all of them. Okay, and Matthew setting this up for reconciliation. Now, Does she has all. She represents all of these things, and she is following behind them, calling out, and she's being ignored, and they're not talking to her. And then in verse 25, she runs ahead. And she kneels down on the path and stops the disciples from moving forward. She stops the church dead in its tracks right there in this passage. And she said, it's sort of like, like, look, these things have always been calling out to you. These conversations need to be had. These people, um, are they welcome to worship with you? How long are you going to ignore them? And then finally, she plunks herself down so that Jesus and the disciples have to stop and they have to deal with what is right before them. Because there comes a moment when you have to when you have to stop and ask yourself, am I willing to make this person my brother or my sister? Or am I willing to just have this nagging feeling forever in the back of my mind where I can just keep moving and ignoring this thing that's calling out to me to change? How long will I allow my prejudice against human beings created in the image of God equal with me? How long will I allow this to continue? At some point, The woman plunks herself in front of Jesus and and suddenly the entire church has to deal with everything that she represents. Um, This is one of the most compelling pictures in the story. And and to me, one of the most beautiful things also is that right after this, there is the feeding of the 4,000 with seven baskets left over. There is this picture. So Jesus, Matthew has you, you have to confront, I want you to think about all this and then we're gonna sit down and we're gonna share a meal. And the church is going to bring new life. Um, and the church is going, to, is going to constantly be entering into new relationships. And the church is constantly going to be growing and thinking and being challenged. It is what the Spirit does. Reveals to us our blind spots and calls us to repent. There are people in your life, in your life, and you have a picture of them in your mind probably right now. And you're trying to think of somebody else. Don't do that. Think of them. And, and, and you tell yourself, um, I, don't even, I don't even look at this person as my brother or sister. They are my enemy. The things that they've done to me or the ways that they think about whatever this issue or that issue. The gospels are challenging that. Jesus challenges that. There is one king and we are his citizens and we're stupid. We're sheep and we're constantly led astray by things that don't matter. Um, and the call is to constantly come back and fix our eyes once again upon Christ and to follow, which is why every single time we gather, we take communion. We're going to do that right now. Um, So if you are one of the communion servers today, you can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, Communion is the ultimate picture. This is how we are fed. This is how we are made whole. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was poured out for you, but also for that person whom you have rejected. That person who has hurt you, um, that person who you vehemently disagree with, that person who you look at as one of the biggest problems in the world. The body of Christ was broken for them, and the blood of Christ was poured out for them. In our confrontations of evil in the world, what you see as evil and what you confront, it doesn't end there, it also ends with an understanding that God is also inviting them into fellowship with him as well. A seat at the table for them. Scriptures talk over and over and over about how how people in the kingdom of God will find themselves sitting across the table from their mortal enemies. Sitting and worshiping Jesus. this is the big picture. It's all found in communion. Body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ spilled for you. Take a few moments. We need to pray, we need to repent. We need to search our hearts for the things that uh, that we have been silencing that, that God is doing. Um, we need to do what we can to purge our tribal separations from each other. How, how many times in your life have you said, well, I disagree with this person, so I'm out? No, it, it should be, I disagree with this person, so we should really take communion together and spend some time in confession, spend some time affirming that Jesus is Lord, not our petty little idols. And so our communion servers, you guys can come ahead and, and uh, let's pray. Father, Thank you for this place and these people. Guide us, change us. Refocus our eyes upon the things of you. Put roadblocks in our way, things in our life that we have been ignoring and not wanting to deal with, um, the prejudices in our life, the, uh, the people that we have been rejecting. And help us to recognize that these things are not things that keep this person from, uh, from feeling and tasting your love and healing. Even when we confront evil in this world, let us do it with one hand out, saying, you are also welcome at the table. And let us pray deeply that you will continue to reform our hearts and and fashion us more in your image and less in our own. Thank you, Father. Be with us now. In your name. Amen. Amen.